All right, hello everybody, and welcome back to what I believe will be the fourth episode here of the uh, Shooting Time podcast. Got a really cool guest on today. I'll get into that here later. Um, but as we've done all these episodes up to this point, um, we've done them with the guest being someone that I really didn't know all that well up until we got on the uh, got him on the on the other end of the line. And this is um, one of the, f- this is the first time actually that I really got to experience some technical difficulties. Um, we actually had our guest produce and record his own sound for this one. And we ran into a bit of a problem at the end with a microphone battery running out that we didn't know about until we were done. So we lost probably about 30 minutes at the end, which for those of you that have been asking for shorter episodes, well, you're in luck this time, um, mainly by pure chance more than anything. And on that note, we're going to be looking to keep most of the episodes around that hour and a half mark. Sometimes we're just going to go further because things are rolling well. And I guess if nothing else, nothing else, you're just going to have to listen to it in, in two chunks. So, but, um, I think this episode went really well with what we had left and hopefully you'll enjoy it. Uh, we're going to catch up with the uh, um, guest from this one here at a later date, possibly in the fall in a hunting trip. So we'll do a little bit of live podcast then if that works. If not, we'll just have him back on because uh, interesting dude and I really like talking to him. So with no further ado, guys, uh, let's get ready. It's shooting time. to the Shooting Time podcast. Uh, we've got a, a special guest today. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce him um, as to how, how I know him, um, kind of through my history. Um, I, know, I know him as a goose caller. Um, he was really the guy that was huge in the Fred Zink world uh, when Fred Zink was pretty much the pinnacle of the goose waterfowl world. Um, I know him as a champion world champion goose caller and really more recently is a guy that um really seems to respect waterfowl hunting for more than just pile picks and social media attention um he's a river rat he hunts a lot of dangerous situations kind of i guess like i feel like i do um just seems like a good guy all around uh to me um he's the kind of guy that would be duck hunting even if there was no no fame involved or no publicity around it and um i just I can't say that for a lot of other guys in the waterfall world these days, and that means a lot to me. Um, so we have Field Hudnall with us from Field Proven Duck and Goose Calls. So welcome on, Field. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it, man. 
No problem. Good to have you here. Yeah. You were one of the, you were one of those guys that as soon as I started thinking about doing this seriously that I kind of thought in the back of my mind I need to get on. So glad to have you on the other end right now. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate it. How's uh, life? Good. Busy. Uh, my five-year-old just started kindergarten today. So uh, he got on the bus at 645 this morning. And the way that I convinced him, well, one, he was already excited about going. But I explained to him that we're going to get up before daylight, just like on Saturday is opening day of squirrel season, and we're going to do the same uh-huh. thing on Saturday. So literally while we're sitting out waiting on the school bus, you could hear squirrels cutting on nuts. And I was explaining to him, all right, buddy, you hear that? <laughs> then the bus How came. Cool and, that? Yep. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love the fact that you're squirrel hunting too, because it's, I, is, is squirrel hunting, that's actually, it's funny because it really leads well into something I want to talk about here in just a bit, but squirrel hunting must be a lot bigger thing i think in your guys neck of the woods than it is here well it for me it used to be huge uh my dad uh as a kid we always used to go camping on opening night or opening evening of squirrel season we'd go camping then we'd hunt you know opening day of squirrel season and that was a ritual that was an annual thing for us um and i can sadly say i have not been squirrel hunting in years and for some reason, my son, he's just now points out birds and critters. And I'm like, you know what? I want to get back to squirrel hunting. I want to start my son squirrel hunting like my dad with, did with us. I doubt we're going to go camping because I don't remember the ticks being as bad when I was a kid <laughs> as they <laughs> are now. Things. Uh, yeah, so, uh, but now squirrel season, the, the bad thing about it is, is we're in a huge whitetail area. So a lot of guys that are diehard mm. deer hunters, they don't want any squirrel hunters out this time in August because we open up in September for deer. But uh, I got a little place we're going to go squirrel hunting, and again, I don't, I don't ever get bit by the big buck bug, so I'm not really too dude, concerned about deer. Dude, you just you're like impressing me more and more because I'm <laughs> the same way. Like mm-hmm. I could care less about a whitetail, oh. but, and I've always told people that. I, I I attempt to, uh, I buy my archery tag every year mm-hmm. and I have not yet, I haven't hunted deer and a whitetail in 10 years because it's always right when you should be chasing mallards. Right. I cannot get myself to go after the things. So that tag just sits there. I don't even ever fold it and put it in my pocket. It just sits on the shelf. Yeah. looks It looks good though. Yep. Now don't get me wrong. I love deer hunting. In fact, my wife and I, we haven't bought beef in probably seven years because all we do is eat deer meat. Uh, yep. my dad, he, he's a, he's retired USDA meat inspector. So when uh-huh. years ago, he always helped process deer. And then that's what I also do on the side is process deer. And my goal is to put seven or eight does in the freezer each year. And if I get bit by the big buck bug, those does will probably reduce to about yep. two or, and I just, I don't really care about antlers. I love shooting deer, though. Don't get me wrong. Well, they, don't, they don't taste as good as the meat does. Right, so. <laughs> right. I just, I love shooting deer. It doesn't matter if it's a doe or a buck. Oh, that's cool. I but like I, that theory. I love eating them. Mm-hmm. I've really started getting into that same mindset myself. Um, I shot, and I've shot an elk the last two years. And so we've been the same. I haven't, we haven't bought beef other than in a restaurant, you know, for yeah. a long time. So it's kind of cool to see. And then between that, you take turkeys, ducks, fish, elk, geese, and the guy really... Doesn't, I mean, we haven't bought anything other than 
you know, some seafood or something that you can't just get or catch. Right. So right. it's kind of cool. It takes it to a different level and, and it kind of adds a whole nother dimension to the hunting side. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Now we'll have a ribeye steak. I will, <laughs> we, we buy the occasional big old fat, juicy ribeye. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, there. That's hard. <laughs> you can't, you can't really get the same uh, yeah. flavor always out of venison. Now an elk is a different story that you might, that might rival a ribeye. Yeah. <laughs> I would say if you got elk backstrap, that, that's close. Right. Um, so yeah. actually, you know, <laughs> I think this is uh, your squirrel story brings up a couple of things that, that I um, find interesting. And you, you mentioned how the ritual of the squirrel hunt is something that you guys did and did. And there's a conversation I've had before with people and, it seems that in a lot of these hunting things, and, and one reason I think we're losing hunters is somewhere down the line that ritual has been broken. Right. And once once that is broken, even once, it's really hard to get that stuff started, especially when there's multiple people involved. Um, and one, one place where I really noticed it was I worked for Cabela's for quite a few years as one of the store managers in our Mitchell, South Dakota store, which is like head, world headquarters for pheasant hunting mm -hmm. um, we had people from around the world come and we do ungodly amounts of business in this little tiny store the day before pheasant season and what would happen is you would see and i think what what we were seeing happen is traffic would slowly get like decrease a little bit every year and what's happening is like pheasant numbers would go down and so you know maybe five percent of guys would say ah let's not go to south dakota this year and i think as those traditions break and and they break that ritual of going one time all of a sudden, it's really hard to start that back up, especially if you want to have multiple people involved. And then as soon as you do that, it just whittles away. You know, if one guy quits going deer hunting for a year or duck hunting for a year, um, it's really hard for them to start back up because they just kind of feel like they're out of it or their buddies don't do it anymore or however it is. So I think that value of having that ritual and starting it with your son right. at a young age like that is super important to get him started. I mean, I, I don't suspect you're going to have any problem having your son be a hunter. Right. But... I think just that idea of those rituals is a huge thing for hunters. So to see him get started on it and be interested in it already is really cool. Right, right. Now it's, you know, and that's, I never really looked at it until I became a dad on, all right, how am I going to get my son introduced into hunting? And I look at how my dad did it. There was no, it was, it was always fun. You know, you didn't, you wanted to be successful, but the whole time, the whole point of the squirrel hunting wasn't necessarily, honestly, I can't ever really remember shooting that many squirrels, but it was the camping, it was the campfire, it was the cooking the bacon, it was, you know, going out collecting firewood, it was the whole experience that made it, you know, so exciting. And, and I've got really strong feelings about how you can properly introduce kids into hunting. I feel like Small game is the perfect way to introduce a kid into hunting. I know too many examples of where, and, and the reason behind it, I don't know. I, I mean, I feel like social media is a huge, huge, <laughs> I don't want to say problem, but it is. It is. So mm -hmm. many people are introducing their kids. The, sometimes the first animal, animal they shoot is a 160 whitetail. Or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's these standards all of a sudden that, well, you know, you, you need to shoot trophy deer. You need to shoot, you know, greenheads. You need to shoot whatever happened to squirrels and rabbits and, you know, starting out. To you. <laughs> yeah. You know, and this is a whole different topic, but I just feel like 
for a kid, you know, there's, you work your way up, you know, like it just seems like years ago, it was like, well, what was the first thing you ever hunted? Well, all of us started squirrel hunting. I mean, whether it was with a 410 or a 22, because that was just, that was the, the introduction to the outdoors. And, yeah. and as a dad, I just feel like taking my son squirrel hunting, it's going to be a walk in the woods. I do not care if we shoot anything. But what I'm not going to do is I don't want to introduce my son into something that there's a higher expectation of performance, you know, because he's five. All right. <laughs> and again, we may not even shoot anything. The time when we get in the woods, he may not even want me to shoot the squirrel. And I'm fine with that, mm -hmm. you know, especially at this age. So I don't know. I'm still learning this because this is literally going to be the first time. No, I take it back. My son did go squirrel or my son did go turkey hunting with me, and I did shoot a gobbler in front of him, and it was the best experience. But it was he like he, he um, dug that. He loved it, man. It was all I wanted to do. I just want him to hear one, and yep. for us to actually connect on one, I was not expecting that. But it was very cool. It seems like the odds of that, as soon as you bring someone with to show them that, it's you're like decreasing your odds by 90%. You are. Yeah. 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 Just and, by, by pure chance. That's how it always works out. You try to give them that cool experience and oh, shoot, we didn't see anything, which isn't necessarily bad in itself because it shows them kind of what hunting is. And, and if they're still interested after that, well, you've kind of set up that they're probably going to be interested once it really does happen. For sure. And I'm almost kind of disappointed that the hunt happened so quickly the way it did. <laughs> I'm glad yep. and I'm disappointed. One, because now mm -hmm. he expects it to happen that way. You go yep. out there, you sit there, you you got all your snacks, and then right at daylight, a big gobbler comes running in. No, it's it, like, does, uh, it doesn't happen that of way. The time that happens. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. Around here, I've uh, at least in South Dakota where I hunt, I've come to the expectation that I'm I'm solely getting up in the morning to be out at sunrise just to hear birds gobble. Right. I never have an expectation of shooting one off the roost anymore. We never do. To be honest with you. I cannot remember the last time I shot a gobbler that early. I never yeah. shoot them that early. It's always around 10 o'clock to noon between that 10 and 2 yep. period. So to shoot one that early, I haven't done that in years. And now my five-year-old thinks that that's routine because that's, that's the only hunt he's ever be. been on. <laughs> so, <laughs> Dad, why didn't they come in right away? I know. Next time you're out. Well, All son, right. actually, it's a lot of sitting and walking and not shooting anything <laughs> swatting mosquitoes and ticks that's yeah. how it goes usually absolutely that's funny and not hearing anything so getting back to your squirrel thing i think um you know and i can't I, i'm not gonna say that i'm a, a big squirrel hunter um, a lot of it's just because our seasons start now at the same time that elk seasons start and mm -hmm. early goose seasons start so that they overlap and that's doesn't make the priority list for me but i think it's that perfect opportunity for a guy to get out and show kids and like and you're in a pretty very controlled situation because the squirrel is up in a tree it's not uh, the deer thing where you have to be super quiet I mean, obviously you're not going to be make a ton of noise right it's not like ducks where the ducks are unpredictable and flying so it's actually the perfect opportunity for that right um, but so that, that what, one of the questions that we want to talk about is it it seems that there's a uh, just from listening to other podcasts and just other people we've met and seeing things on social media it seems like that Kentucky area is a lot of like hardcore dudes that are into duck hunting, fishing, uh, blowing duck and goose calls. Uh, what do you think it is in that with that terrain, the the people, the culture that brings that out of people or, or that really develops that? 
or am Here. I uh, totally off base? But it sure seems like there's a lot of guys from that area that do a lot of everything. Same right. here. I mean, uh, born and raised Southern Minnesota, but I've I've been around the scene quite a bit most of my life. And there's a couple areas I've always tipped my cap to. One of them is Louisiana, actually, and I, I won't get into that. But the other one is the is Kentucky. It seems like whether it be stories or people I've met. There is a solid hunting scene there. Like guys that don't discriminate game very much, seem to appreciate it all. Not only the hunt, but the the harvest and the eating too. It just seems like there's some really good outdoorsmen in that area. Right, right. Um, I think the thing about Kentucky is What's interesting about Kentucky, so like where I live, I live basically 30 miles northeast of Louisville, right on the Ohio River. Uh, Kentucky is made up of different areas that excel, what's the wording for this? They have different levels of quality of hunting. For example, where I live, it's actually some of the worst waterfowl hunting I've ever experienced. Everywhere I've traveled, (laughs) it's some of the most inconsistent waterfowl hunting. We have our days, but overall, we're not really in a flyway. I think they just put us in one just so we feel, you know, like part of the group, but (laughs) it's not ideal for waterfowl. Now, if you go four hours west, you're still in Kentucky. Now you're in Paducah, Henderson, Mm -hmm. Hickman, which Mm -hmm. is historically known for having some of the best waterfowl hunting in the country because it's right there by southern Illinois. Um, It's huge waterfowl heritage. Now, where I live now, so that's central Kentucky is where I live. We t- Western Kentucky has the waterfowl. As soon as you start going east and southeast, now you're in elk country. Um, Eastern oh, yeah. Kentucky has, they call it the land of 10,000 elk. Um, there has been rumors and talk about the potential next world record coming from Eastern Kentucky because we have m- very mild winters. Uh, oh, yeah. There's no mountain lions, so there's no natural predators other than the rednecks that live in Eastern Kentucky. <laughs> uh, <laughs> elk steak. Yes. And antlers. Yes. Uh, so actually the area I live in is phenomenal uh, turkey hunting and whitetail hunting. We've got huge whitetails in our area. We've got a lot of turkey, but the turkey is really just recent. I say recently, uh, has recently the populations have just increased. I remember my brother was 16, so that would have put me at 14, 13, I remember hearing my first gobbler. I'd been deer hunting. I'd been squirrel hunting since I was eight. Never saw a turkey. Never heard a turkey. I remember specifically hearing my first gobbler. And then since then, the populations have just exploded. Uh, so when you put, you can't, when you lump Kentucky, you've got waterfowl on the western side of the state. You've got deer and turkey in the central. You've got elk in the eastern part. So there's a little bit of everything. Um, the area we live in, again, as far as waterfowl, Our rule of thumb, or my rule is, we don't get a lot of anything, but we get a little bit of everything, which does Mm -hmm. make make it very interesting. Um, We'll go out on the river and we'll shoot, you know, on one day we might shoot mallards, we might shoot widgeon, we might shoot pintails. And then on the next day, you might see nothing but divers. And then on the third day, you may not see a duck, period. And the thing about, again, where we live and just big river hunting no matter what happens on one day has no bearing or significance on what's going to happen the next day. If anything, 
Mm-hmm. It's kind of our common joke is if we go out on Monday and we have a bang up shoot, you might as well sleep in on Tuesday because it will not happen again. I promise you. So witness the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And I don't know if it's just, uh, you know, and that's what makes it tough about our about our area is if you only had the weekends to waterfowl hunt where I live, it would probably be pretty disappointing. But my brother and I were very blessed and fortunate that because of our work, we can hunt every morning if we want to um, and kind of pick and choose the days that we want to go. So that Monday through Friday is normally when we have our better hunts. And then Saturday sure. and Sunday, anymore, I probably hunt less on Saturday and Sundays than I do during the week just because my kids, my, you know, my wife's off work, my kids are home, I'm going to make them breakfast. And it's probably even going to be more like that more often now since my son just started kindergarten today. I want my weekends are going to belong to him. And then Monday through Friday, I'll be out there hunting. That's cool. But that, uh, there's something to be said about those weekday hunts. It was one of, the be- one of the few benefits of working retail for a bunch of years was that I had typically worked weekends and I was off Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And I, I actually volunteered to have just no weekends off during the fall. Because it was a marked difference in our success right. on a Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday versus a Friday, Saturday or Sunday. Yep. Or a Monday after all the beat up, after they were beat up, after getting <laughs> shot at and chased around every day. Right. Give them a day to settle back down, especially because we hunt a lot, especially late in the season. We hunt that Missouri River stuff and it's it's high pressure and it's probably similar to what you see. Right. <clears throat> right. Um, so would you basically consider that the Ohio River is kind of your duck hunting home then? It's definitely home. I mean, literally, so my house, it's probably 300 yards from the river. I mean, I can see the river out my back deck. Uh, My brother, he lives three blocks over, and he lives right on the river. Um, The boat ramp is 350 yards from my house, and then my shop is three blocks the other way. So, I mean, it's all right here in in our little town. So, um, that's convenient. I mean, yeah, we're, we're right here. So maybe that's one of the things I want to talk about you since I know that I love hunting rivers. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, but maybe just kind of explain like what what the Ohio River is like to hunt. Because it's, I mean, it's one of the bigger rivers in the country, really, isn't it? It's it got to be top five, I would assume. Yep. Yep. Something like that. Uh, the river is approximately in, cert- in our stretches. I think I range, ranged it one time and it's like right at 850, 900 yards across. Um, we have so so- big. It mm-hmm. is. Uh, we have barge traffic year round, so the barge traffic does not shut down like it does on certain parts of the Mississippi River. Yeah. Um, it's a very deep river, but it's a fairly slow moving river unless when it's at pool. Um, it's yeah. not nearly as swift current as the Missouri River or the Mississippi River. Uh, it's a slower moving current. Um, I've only seen it freeze over twice, and last year was one of them. It didn't last more than a day, but it was solid ice all the way across. Um, and we have, again, where we're at, we have really steep hills around us. So we're kind of right where agriculture and hills meet, which is why it's not necessarily the greatest waterfowl mm. area. Yep. Um, we don't really thrive on backwater around us because when the river rises, it just gets deep and fast. Um, we have some creeks that'll flood out into the fields, but we don't have a lot of backwater around here. And really, as far as we don't have sandbars, um, very few sandbars. We don't have the wing dams, the regular wing dams like you see on the Mississippi and the Missouri. Yep. Um, so it, it is, a, it's a different style of hunting. 
You can be right on the bank. About that. Huh? So that's one of the things I was curious about because like I've seen a bunch of your photos and it looks like you're just out hunting in the current. Mm-hmm. Whereas that's I mean, we try to avoid that. And because and, that's one of the things about a river hunt is there's so many different ways. Like you say river hunt, but there's I can think of four or five different big scenarios. You can have like way upstream on the Mississippi River where it's a fast kind of ripping like a fly fishing type thing with rocks. Yep. Um, or the Missouri has that way up in in Montana. Um, then you can move into like the reservoirs on a river. Uh, you can have a place like I hunt, which is all, it's not necessarily backwater, but it's marsh. It's, uh, it'd be like the um, alluvial, like the fan type stuff where the, the deposits start to settle out and you see that uh, marsh, marsh scene set in. And then you can have that big, deep main channel thing. Like I expect like what you're hunting or right. if you're in down on the Missouri in Kansas or the Mississippi in Southern Iowa, Illinois and that stuff. So there's a bunch of different things. And I've always kind of been a little curious on how guys actually hunt that where you're in this, the main channel and you have mm-hmm. to like deal with barges and you have to deal with keeping your decoys anchored <laughs> in deep, fast water. And That's all, our and, biggest challenge. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, now you nailed it. Um, we basically, so we hunt the main channel of the river and the biggest challenge we encounter is what our backdrop is. So we have really steep mm-hmm. hills. Um, so trying to find locations to where those birds can actually work to where they're not flying into the trees. <laughs> um, there's very few spots up and down the river to where you can have good visibility. You can have where it's shallow enough to even one, let alone wade, but also two to get decoys to hold. So we run about 20 foot lines on all of our decoys oh just in case, because when the river does jump up, you're going to be sitting in 15 foot of water, you know, and then when the river rises, all it does is get faster current, yep. as you well know. Um, I hunted with uh, Casey Hop for a buddy of mine from uh, Minnesota, and he came down to hunt. And it's it's like anything. Anytime you invite people to come hunt with you, something <laughs> yep. goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he came down and hunted. The river jumped up. We had decoys with one-pound weights on each decoy. And one of, some of them even had pound and a half. We were picking them up a mile down the river. Oh, my. I mean, it was just, you're literally sitting there watching your spread, just each one of them break off one at a time, and, you, and you're just constantly picking them up. in that case, boys. it's not convenient to just get your boat out just to chase one either. It's a, it's a project. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. You let half your spread float away. Go, you go retrieve them, them, bring them back. Exactly. Oh, yep. Man. Yep. And he actually, he shot a, he wanted, for some reason, he wanted a pintail, and the stars aligned, and he shot, I mean, it was in that flood water. I think we had maybe two dozen decoys out. The furthest one might have been 15 yards, <laughs> and he had a beautiful bull sprig just come in, and he just smoked it right at 15 he, yards. So, I mean, it it made his trip, and I was surprised that we even got well, the that the fact done. that you could get a pintail on open water is, one, a success. Yeah. Two, you had him that close as a success, mm-hmm. and with decoys and everything being jacked up. So, that's he got super lucky. Oh man, we were just going out there to burn daylight, and we—I mean, we shot a few ducks, but it's just stuff like that always seems to happen. Uh, like, you know, not ideal conditions at all. More times than not, when I take someone <clears throat> that is a guest that isn't like one of my normal hunting buddies, you're almost guaranteed that it's going to be a lackluster day. I just—I've got—I yep. had one guy that I worked with, and he'll probably listen to this at some point. Is uh, I took him, I think, on like five different hunts. So he wasn't like the guy I normally hunted with, but whenever I could try to get him out, I would. And he loved a duck hunt. And 
I tell him all these stories about how many birds we'd shoot the day before, two days before. I said, dude, you got to come with. Thursday, it's going to be good. And he'd, and he'd have Thursday <laughs> off. And I don't think over those like five hunts, I honestly don't know if we shot five ducks. I mean, some of, some of the yeah. worst five hunts I've ever had have been with him. I mean, they're fun, but they're still like, it wasn't what you want. And you're like, God dang it, man. I don't know. He's just like, yes, has that carries around a bad, a bad luck horseshoe in his pocket whenever he's with me. So, yeah. Yep. A buddy of mine that I used to, and I started running around with in high school, a buddy of mine named Daniel. He hunted with my brother and I all the time. And the joke was, it was actually just the opposite. So whenever he would go with us, it would be phenomenal. And then he would always have something else that came up, which he loved hunting, which his dad was a big farmer, so he stayed busy with that as well. But we'd go out there, have a heck of a hunt, high-fiving, all right, man, we'll see you here tomorrow. And he'd be like, uh, I'll call oh, you, which means yeah, he's not coming. Exactly. <laughs> we would go out there and maybe shoot one or nothing at all. Now, this is not just one isolated case. This has been over years repeated times and the joke was is call daniel see if we should even go tomorrow <laughs> or call him if he goes great if he says no let's just all stay in because it's not going to pan out like i've never seen anything like it but that, you're right like, there's way to predict the future that no one else does <sighs> and it's he's not even putting logic behind it he's not looking at weather he's not looking at anything he's just like well no i'm gonna go shoot clay pigeons or i'm gonna go whatever shoot blackbird oh, yeah man. whatever just random. I mean, he, he should have played the lottery. Yeah, luck like, luck but, like that is, is uh, not easy to find. I can tell him that firsthand. Yeah, yeah. So back, uh, another thing it, about the river. Yeah. Um, so what's your guys' migration there? Like, is it, <laughs> for those who, who didn't. Hardly, who hardly you, ever. This isn't going to be on video, <laughs> but his eye roll and his huff he just made <laughs> tells you all you need to know right there. Uh, well, and, and also, yeah. how has it changed? I mean, from when you first started hunting the Ohio to today. We hear him. Oh, what, what did he just okay. say? He just asked about how how, um, uh, how it's changed from when you first started hunting the Ohio to today. Oh, gotcha. How it's changed. Um, that's a good question. Because um, I can only assume it's changed since you were younger. Correct. As far as number of birds, it's been less geese, actually. Um, the duck hunting has always seemed to have been pretty stable. Um, it's pretty inconsistent, but you always have your, your strong days. It does seem like we're seeing less numbers of Canada geese. Um, we're, one thing that's interesting is we are seeing more snows and more specks, and this is all within the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not necessarily more hunting pressure on the river because it kind of comes and goes. There's probably about eight different groups of guys and we all know each other. We kind of stick to the same areas. We'll bounce around sometimes, but half of them all live in the same little town. Uh, and any new guys that come to the area learn real quick, it's not that great. Um, so they kind of get burnt out, and then once deer season hits, opening day, of course, there's a lot of boats. Mm -hmm. But then as the season goes on and these guys sit around and watch empty skies for a while, they get other interest and move on to deer hunting or what, what have you. Um, but as far as around us, um, man, really things have not changed that much. As crazy as that sounds, our tactics have changed. Uh, we run bigger spreads. My brother and I have always been a fan of decoys. We love decoys. We love hunting over big spreads, which is my dad hates decoys. Oh, man. When he used to take <laughs> us out hunting, he would kick the decoys. He would 
gripe and complain about we have too many. And it's kind of always been my brother and I's joke that we're going to get more decoys just to irritate my dad. <laughs> um, but I love hunting over big spreads. Um, our blinds that we build are kind of getting bigger and more comfortable mm -hmm. since we're getting older in age. You know, they're a little bit and warmer. You have more resources. Uh, more resources. Getting smarter. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah, more resources. Smarter. And you learn that they're just as effective, if not more yep. effective. Um, we used to hunt on the bank. Uh, either A, we'd build a brush blind or we'd use the, uh, I remember when the final approach eliminator blinds came out, we would stack those up on the bank and you're laying there on the riverbank. That's cold, oh, especially yeah. when you're not shooting laying any ducks. on your back. Uh, oh my gosh. I mean, you, I remember we'd get up and sprint up and down the bank just to try to stay warm because there really weren't that many good clothes. You're wearing either fireman boots as waders <laughs> or... Just yeah, the equipment well, was. Isn't it amazing too how a single flock of ducks or geese immediately warmed you up in that situation? Yes. You could have gone from shivering yes. to one flock of ducks coming in and you're shooting at them, and no one's complaining yep. about being cold for the next half hour. Exactly. Yep. And that's again our joke on the river is if we shoot, it depend. And again, we hunt. We enjoy hunting with a lot of people. Um, we'll hunt five, six people consistently. Um, are blind, you can shoot nine people at a time. Um, if we shoot three ducks, that's what we call a river limit. Sometimes it's even one duck is a river limit. We didn't get shut out. We didn't zero. <laughs> it was worth going out there because I can promise you there's a lot of zero days. Uh, but uh, but no, I mean, uh, as far as how it's changed over the years. You, you did mention that those snows and specks are coming. Do you, th so trying to think of your guys flyway are those birds you think coming out of the eastern flyway or are they coming from like central and mississippi yeah they're coming from mississippi flyway um so you go back in the early 90s late 80s mm -hmm. uh henderson and paducah southern illinois those were the glory days for canada geese mm -hmm. i mean it was you would get there was arguments what was really the goose capital of the world? Was it Southern Illinois? Was it Eastern Maryland? Um, Paducah, Henderson, they thrived. Everybody there was a goose hunter. They all had goose pits. They all had big goose spreads. That was where you went to go goose hunting. Now, those guys talk about if they see a Canada goose. They don't go there anymore. But the ducks are there and the snows are there by, you know, very large numbers. So, what we've noticed, not only from where we hunt, but we do uh, a direct consumer show up in Indianapolis um, called the Indianapolis Deer Turkey Waterfowl Expo. And for the past 10 years, we talked to a lot of waterfowl hunters that hunt the western side of Indiana. When you talk to the older guys that had been hunting for the last 50 years, they talk about how there used to be a lot of snows and specks in Indiana. We never, we, we've never seen them. In the last 10 years, we're getting a lot more requests for spec calls. We're hearing stories about guys who are shooting snows, a lot more specs, central and western Indiana. So those are a lot of the same birds that we're starting to see now as well. What's causing that shift back over? I, that I don't know. Um, but it's definitely a trend to where there's more specs and snow showing up in our huh, area. That's interesting that they'd be coming across from the Mississippi going that way rather than down to like the Arkansas. Cause I know those guys are seeing a lot more too than they ever have. So it's, we're just, it's, right. it's always interesting to me. It's one of the things I love, um, oops, cell phone. I love about, um, mm -hmm. that, uh, 
about duck stuff and, and we've talked to a few guys already that are kind of on the sciencey side of the waterfall world and listen to them talk about how the migrations just change and it's cool to hear it backed up you know by guys in the field so and and, right, and it's right. stuff that you don't really notice and it takes a while to to actually recognize it as a trend like if you all of a sudden see a flock of specks you know no one's going to say oh my god the specks are here but like you said over 10 years and you see it happen and happen again. You're like, oh, wow, this something actually changed in their habits and in their flight and in, in their heads that brings them there every year. So I think that's kind of yep, interesting. for sure. Yeah, it's like sandhill cranes um, mm-hmm. in the last. So Kentucky now has a sandhill crane season, but you have to draw um, a permit for it. You don't just get it over the yep. counter. Um, but over the, again, over the last probably 10 years, um, we see a consistency in about – in about three or four days straight, it is constant sandhill crane migration. When it happens, you can't. It's a little bit harder to predict. Typically, it's like late November, um, but I mean, through the night, through the day, you'll hear them. Oh yeah. But you really have to look for them. I mean, they are oh, yeah. way up there, Circling. but it's just constant all day long. Sand hills. Flying in a big, flying they in a big circle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they yep. circle their way. Yeah, I'm <laughs> that. Yes. Yes, but you don't. You never. You hardly ever see them in a cornfield around here. They don't stage flying here. They over. They just fly over. Correct. Yep. Yep. So uh, there's been a lot of talk about guys wanting to start sandhill crane hunting in our area, um, but nobody really has the decoys yet. Nobody really knows the technique for it yet. And again, you're not going to just drive down the road and see a field full of sandhill cranes and say, "Hey, let's go yeah. hunt them." Um, so uh, it's still it's a new species i say new again about the last 10 12 years we started to really see them um so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next 10 years on sand hills around our area. sand hills i would i will definitely say that's one area that i'm not educated on in terms of hunting i know a couple guys who've done it a little bit seriously mm-hmm. and it's it can be i know there's some different techniques like guys almost use decoys as like a blocker i've, I've heard of this technique where they would do it opposite of how you do it for goose calling or do goose hunting. i think they see so well is that they'll set decoys up in a field and almost use the decoys to like push the birds to another part of the field where the okay. guys are hiding. So it, it kind of goes away from yeah. exactly how you would like normally try to decoy birds, but supposedly it works fairly well. So yeah, here, here it's South completely Dakota, foreign to me. Here in South Dakota, we have a, a pretty good migration through the central part of the state. And it's about an hour and a half to my west where I live. Um, and we can hunt them there, but it's one of those things that's very underutilized as far as a game bird. I mean, I know maybe two or three guys that even attempt it. So yeah, really, it's, but what's what's strange yeah. about sand hills, at least for me, is I was always told that they have really good eyesight, which I know they do, and that they're so hard to hunt. Your concealment has to be perfect. They pick apart your decoys, all that kind of stuff. But now this must have been. I lose track of time, but around five or six years ago, I still stay in contact with a lot of the guys in West Texas and Oklahoma, and they told me that the Sandhills have been saving their hunting seasons, that that they're running big decoy, Sandhill decoy spreads and doing really well. So I'm curious to know what their exact tactic is or why the birds would be possibly easier to hunt down in Texas, if that's more of a winter ground for them or... Yeah, I'm sure it's a wintering ground. They're probably doing the deal where they're digging in and doing all that kind of stuff. Yeah, too, they I are. They're digging in. I think most people up here don't would never dig into a field <laughs> for for a duck. Right, probably better equipment too. Yeah. I know. Uh, 
a buddy of mine, Grant Doyle, um, he owns Deception Decoys out of Kansas, mm. and their main bread and butter is custom sandhill decoys, um, which I know a lot of those guys in that area, they've been shooting sandhills for years, and there's, you know, there's uh, outfitters who focused on mm. sandhills alone. And he's invited me out several times to come out and hunt. I need to just pull the trigger and do it because it's something I'm very intrigued in, but I have no experience whatsoever. They're a with. cool bird. I've, I've seen one shot in my life, and when we picked it up, I mean, they're just, they're like a dinosaur. Those big, big yeah. feet dangling and watching them come in. It's something else seeing those feet drop. I mean, like any, anybody who hunts mallards knows, like, the minute you see those feet kick out, that's <laughs> the minute. But when you see those feet kick out, it's a whole other deal. They're so big. Yeah. Like, it's just, they're just dangling. And I even, I even want to, I've, I've never gotten to work, but I've tried getting pictures of them a few times in the spring just because I love those pictures yeah. that guys have when they just drop those feet down and they have this big gangly things coming in. They're just, it's, it's a cool deal. So I just, I, yeah. the problem is, is when they're around is when there's mallards around and, like everything else, right. that's where my attention goes. So I can't get myself to give up one day of mallard hunting to yeah. to go shoot some <laughs> cranes that I've never done before in my life. You know? How's how's yeah. the uh, field proven yeah. sandhill crane coming along, or the the call sandhill call? A sandhill man, we've got so many other irons in the fire right now <laughs> that we <laughs> we got to get caught up. Like, on. Could you imagine <laughs> you have like eight guys that would be interested in the sandhill call, probably? Actually, right, if you've right. Got, I know Deception. If you've got a goose Deception call, Deception has one that sounds awesome. Can, I mean, it sounds. Really can they good. actually call them? I mean, is it is it like a goose at all? Do you know? Yeah, they swear by it, man. Uh, I know Grant has sent me some images and some video, and they decoy. He says they decoy phenomenal. You know, great. Um, I've never seen video of them working the calls, so you know, I'm not really sure if you can actually turn them. Or how that works, but I'm very interested in uh, giving it a shot and seeing what it's about. I think it does work. I've heard that too. Um, and really, if, if a guy has just any short read, you pretty much have a sandhill call. Especially if yeah. you have like a half breed, those they're really good at doing a sandhill call. Um, I remember I used to watch old videos. I think Tim did it on some like his old, uh, um, like super old instructional stuff. So I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. When I was. When I was, uh, let's see, I think it was year 2000, I went out to Great Bend, Kansas for the uh, Pattern Master Open Goose Calling Championship. And that was a fun weekend because they had like 10 contests all within a couple days. And they had the World Championship Sandhill Calling Contest. Uh And basically all it was is all the goose callers are using their goose calls, fluttering their tongue in them. Half these guys are from Illinois, Ohio, never even hunted a sandhill. They don't really know what they look like. They heard it on a video somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, so you basically got goose guys fluttering their tongue in a short read goose call, trying to you know make somewhat of a sound. Um, and I think the guy that won it, he actually just did a mouth call, and he was actually from Kansas, so which you know makes sense. Um, but now I know that there are some specialized sandhill calls out there that really do sound really good. replicate it. It's not just a modified goose yeah. call. That's cool. Kind of one of those things that's probably just created, like the thing has created itself. I mean, there's probably not a huge, yep. huge market for it, but you get those niche guys that really love them. For sure. So. And I think that's going to, yep. I think the sandhill hunting is going to only grow. I don't, I don't think that's a bird that's declining in population or range. No, I think I would say they're growing. I mean, even here where we are, so I'm in my hometown at my buddy's house here in uh, Waseca, Minnesota. And when I was living here 10 years ago, 12 years ago, you would occasionally, very occasionally, see a sandhill. Mm-hmm. And we went for just a short drive looking at some goose hunting spots yesterday. Yeah, we just saw, last night. 
probably half a dozen standing right next to the truck and saw heard heard and saw other ones flying by i mean it really? was never a thing before now and in the like, spring now too in the last few years here in central southern minnesota in the spring we're seeing a lot of them so anyways i don't know that any of us gotcha. are super so, interested in sand yeah hills. maybe we can move on from sand hills. <laughs> yeah we'll probably, uh, we'll probably yeah. talk more about sand hills than any of us are really interested but right so you're staging uh for game fair huh are you going to game fair this I'm gonna weekend go up there and uh just talk to people i haven't been there for a long time yeah. um i'm actually gonna go up and meet uh a buddy of mine rick stosky if you know of him he's a dog trainer um okay. i'm gonna talk to him and uh actually sean stall at the same time, go yeah. up, to, go up yeah. to their place and uh, hang out and then go. Are you going to hunt? Is the no, season? we don't have a season Is... yet. We Minnesota oh, opens. Okay. Like North Dakota has that same deal. We, you know, to, we used to have it in South Dakota. Ah, uh, man, yeah. I just have a hard time. I, luckily, I'm glad, I'm glad South Dakota got rid of it. We can't do it anymore. It's hard. I messed with it right, one right. season. It's just and not as hot. It's ninety degrees. It's, it's hot. It's it's buggy, which I don't. I sound like a complainer, but it's it's just got an extra element of summer to it that just doesn't feel right. And the and the birds <laughs> don't respond to calls very well. No, or decoys or they, decoys. They kind of just land. And it's not to say that you can't decoy then. But you can because I've heard stories yeah. of some just awesome hunts. Yeah, I've had it can happen, but the consistency to it is not there whatsoever. We had we had some really good hunts, but then you'd have the next hunt, and you thought it was going to be lights out, and every bird would individually like flocks would just they don't they don't seem to have that like grouping behavior yet where they're worried about coming to yeah. other geese, so they just land throughout the field. And if, if sure. you're not lucky and they just start coming to you, you're going to have a mess, and you end up we you end up spending more time chasing geese off the backside of the field yep. than you do actually hunting. So. Yep. And on water too, they don't land together whatsoever. Yeah. They want to be separate. And it feels weird too. Like a few years ago when I tried it for the first time, I would just look at the water I'm on and I just think to myself, why am I not fishing? You only have so much time to fish open water <laughs> up here. You know, why am I not fishing right now? The waterfall season right. is coming. Yeah, the, the September season is such a different deal. It is. That's actually what we were doing uh, last night when we were driving around is about a mile south of where we're sitting. We have a really cool spot to goose hunt. It's just a big uh, big green grass field with uh, some ditches running through it, like, you know, maybe two feet deep. And we've got, it's not a pit blind, but it's like a half sunk, like a mm-hmm. A-frame type thing that we built in there. So we're pretty right. much sunk to the ground level with just a little bit of taller grass around us. And, and it's, not, I mean, there are actually geese using this grass, but it's, we're not chasing yeah. those. We're chasing that molt migration that comes through. And for some reason, right where we are, right at that exact spot is kind of like a, a beeline where a couple flight paths come yeah, through two lines that come through this one spot. So it's like this, it's a super fun spot. You can go out there, you know, you don't, you can set a hundred decoys or just leave them because it doesn't matter. Cause it's all, it's new yeah. birds every day that you're, that you're calling at. So that's kind of, that'll be our, that'll actually be my first goose hunting this year. Cause I won't, I won't be able to chase geese. So probably, oof, probably 19th or 20th of September until I get back from my, uh, elk hunt this year. So. Right. Where are you going? Uh, going to Colorado in a week to chase mule deer nice. in like super high country. And then we're yeah. leaving straight from that to go to Montana for an elk hunt. So I'll be gone like 25 days living out of a bet. Holy yeah, cow. I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's I'm like, awesome. That's I'm trying to get a bunch of these things recorded and, and done ahead of time. So I've got some stuff to cover me while I'm gone for almost a month. 
So right. it'll be fun. I'll probably be really sick of Mountain House by then, and I'll probably come back <laughs> with looking like the Unabomber with my beard out of control yeah. and lost ten pounds. I hope would be awesome, and uh, my right. hair, what little I have, will be frazzled and looking pretty rough. So, but hopefully, I've got about five hundred pounds of meat in the cooler with me when I come home. So I'll be Absolutely. ready to rock at that point. That'd be yeah, awesome. We've never done the yeah. Colorado thing, so I'm I'm a little nervous. Like I'm not ever normally ner- normally nervous about a hunting trip, but I'm kind of nervous because it's we're going to be at like eleven thousand, twelve thousand feet, and I've, I've never right. actually been that high other than in a vehicle, and probably not even then. I guess really, I don't think many roads go up and over passes like that. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see right. how I handle the the altitude and all that. And I've been trying to get in shape for it, but you never know until you get there and you got fifty pounds on your back and you're at. 11,000 feet and you're huffing and puffing, but I, I think it'll be okay, but um, it'll be fun. I'm super looking forward to it. So yeah, for we'll see sure. how it goes, for I sure. guess. Uh, have you ever done that? Have you done much big game hunting other than whitetail? No, I drew a cow archery tag for Kentucky about five years ago. Four, yeah, five years ago. And I literally had, I think, four days to hunt because I had a DU trip mm. coming up. Um, just the way it fell and i will and i didn't know anything about it i'm like all right i draw this tag i'm like all right what do you do do you set a deer stand do you i zero experience elk hunting and i didn't i've never watched any videos but i will say i went out there uh basically just freelanced it myself on uh so it's daniel boone national forest uh in my zone i had an opportunity and i ranged her at about 50 yards in the woods and my arrow went right, I mean, just right under her. Ugh. And when she took off, I knew that that was the chance. a really good archer. Somebody, sh- I should have smoked her, to be honest yeah. with you. But yeah, but it's, my bow's not the latest and greatest by any no, means. It's just that 50 yards deal, so. too, is you got a wild <laughs> animal standing in front of you. It's a whole different scenario. Mm-hmm. I, I know. I, uh, my first, so I'd never had elk hunted until two falls ago. And I, I told myself, you know what? I'm not getting any younger. I need to do this. A couple of guys that I worked with um, were all about it. Three different guys that I worked with at Cabell's were huge into the backpack, hunting, backcountry type stuff. And they all shot nice elk with their bows year after year. I'm like, you know what? I need to go do this. So I just put yeah. him in the, for the Black Hills of South Dakota. And I I had a few chances. And I, you know, you give me a shotgun in my hand and I'm super comfortable, super confident. Um, no worries, but you put a bow in my hand and I'm not, I'm not an archer by birth. Like I don't do it enough to be natural for it. So I had these times where if a guy was, would have been like I am with a shotgun, you know, I would have smoked them. I mean, at elk at 20 yards, elk at 30 yards, they weren't exactly perfect for me. And I missed it. Well, I, my, my little trip then ran out and I made a trip back for like a three day run. And I had one come into like, I think it was 35 yards. 38 yards and I had yeah I had a 20 30 and a 40 yard pin on my bow that year and I'm thinking to myself okay bottom pin bottom pin well I had another pin stuck all the way down at the bottom of my site that I used it was just an extra oh no so I'm thinking bottom pin bottom pin and I put that thing on and I watched that arrow fly I mean I'm talking like four feet over it's 10 yards over I I sat there in just amazement and I and so disappointed thinking you know I I busted my butt I'd lost like 25 pounds that year getting in shape for this and I shot I was shooting every night and I'm like what could have happened what could have happened and I go and I I look for my arrow I find it back in the woods and I'm thinking I look at my pins and I'm like son of a bitch 
I know exactly what happened. I was so nervous that this elk was standing there in front of me that I used the bottom pin, which was probably like an 80 yeah. yard pin or something. I don't even know. And I was so yeah. bummed. Well, the good thing is I got back into that herd and shot one, a cow, a cow right. that later that afternoon. Um, but yeah, it was that there's something about that kind of stuff that, you know, it, I gave up a little bit of my, my September goose hunting to do it. I'm, I guess I'm glad that I did because it's a whole different experience than what I've done for a long time that time of year. So especially yep. to have it like close to you like that in Kentucky, you're really lucky. I imagine that your tag opportunities probably are not really easy. No, I think they draw, I think they give away a thousand tags a year. Uh, I've put in every year. I've only drawn once. My buddy, one of my best friends, has drawn two bulls within six years apart. Oh. And I've, how that happens, I have no idea. I mean, that wow. does not happen. Um, so he's been very fortunate. He's killed two bulls. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you put in, it's only 10 bucks per draw. You can put in four different draws and you just hope for the best, but. If I lived out west, I could see I would definitely be an elk yeah. hunter. I love the solitude of it. I love the camping part. I mean, it was negative five at night when we were out there camping. I just, I love oh, it. That's fine. I mean, I just, I could get into well, it. Well, if you like turkey hunting could, and you obviously like duck and goose hunting, it's, and some people will probably yeah. try to rip me on this, but in my experience, elk hunting is almost identical to turkey hunting, especially if you hunt in right. big country. If you are hunting like someone's farmyard and that's your turkey hunting experience, then it's definitely not yeah. the same. But to me, I've hunted, I've hunted turkeys in Montana, the Black Hills of South Dakota, which are like a mini mountain type scenario. And yep. I can't think of hardly anything that I do tactic wise. It's different other than worry about smell. I mean, of course, there's some differences between the animal, but they react really similar to how a turkey does. And so to me, it was, I picked, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a professional elk hunter by any means. I don't want to pretend that I am, yeah. but I feel like I grasped what you, the basics are super easy just from having that turkey hunting experience. And, you know, even just from like the waiting, you know, okay, there's a, how to move around an animal to get in front of them. How are they going to respond to a call? Where can they come to the call? How do you get yourself set up the right spot for that? And then you just add on that dealing with the scent and the wind and if you got that part figured out, I mean, I, you, you can, you're set up for success. I mean, at least at some level and, you know, a, a few years is going to help. But if you're, if a guy's a good proficient turkey hunter in like big, big country, he's going to have a pretty good head start on elk. So it's that game of chess. Yeah, exactly. That just, yep. They, they make a move. You make a move. Like I would honestly, I would rather spring turkey hunt than anything. Like I love spring turkey hunting more than I love waterfowl. Hunting. I can totally understand. Um, I don't. That. I don't fall, but at the same time, I'm not really that eager to go shoot Merriams or Rios. I love hunting Easterns. I love sh shooting them in hardwood timber. Yes. Oh, uh, yes. I love that. <laughs> I love them in timber. When you say, if I have to hunt a big open field, my excitement level drops to like half or even less. Like I just, I love shooting them in the ah, woods. That's perfect. That's one of the things I want to talk to you about is how, how <laughs> important, because this for me, like the methods that I do things is super important um and and becoming more important too yeah it's like, not that we're old guys but as we get older yeah well, it's i would say for me a lot of it's been that way for quite a while like i if once my podcasts are released and people hear us i mean i'm a duck water hunter i don't dry field hunt yeah. really at all um and not right. and it's just by choice um and I, I turkey hunt like i try to hunt that big country i try to hunt places where turkeys have maybe more of a chance and they do like we actually will in mornings we will literally walk 
on our way out to a place and we'll walk underneath turkeys in a guy's farmyard or his feedlot to go a mile and a half further out to where the, I guess, I mean, they're all wild turkeys, but where the turkeys that mm-hmm. aren't going to be the gimmies are. And those ones are hard. And so like, I love yeah. to hear that. Like I love to hunt them in hardwoods. Like I love that statement because to me, it's the same thing. Like we don't, we don't have a lot of big hardwoods where we hunt. We hunt a lot of like uh, river breaks and stuff. So it's, it's like on top of like tops of these hills will be grassland. And then the bottoms will be some draws filled with trees. But the, mm-hmm. these Merriams are not like an Eastern in that they, they don't need that. Uh, they don't need to be in the woods near as much. So you'll catch them out on the edge of these grasslands a lot. Yeah. So we're sitting yeah. at the edge of the trees and you're calling along that edge, typically what happens. But man, when I get a chance to like set up in the bottom of one, and if I'm, cause we, we use those bottoms of the woods for walkways a lot cause they, they can't see you. And you know, we'll yeah. float call as we're going through there. And God, when I get one going and it's in the bottom, I'm just like as happy as can be. Cause there's a totally different experience when they come in in that woods looking for you rather than out yeah. on because like they, they can't see as well versus out in that open field, like you said, where they can they know kind of what the story is there. But, man, they come through that yep. woods. God, I love that. There's something about that. that is like yep. it's more it's way more intimate, I think. Well, when when you and the bird are both right. in the woods, too, do you feel like you're almost more on an even playing field? Yeah. Like not not one has a distinctive advantage over the other. Yeah, it's, I would say you do have a little bit, like, it's a similar idea in that, um, cause you're kind of like, you're in the same environment, you're in the same area, territory as them. So yeah, mm-hmm. I would say that's for sure similar. Like, I, what's your take on, we'll get off turkeys here in a minute, but what's your take on, uh, blinds for turkeys? <laughs> <clears throat> How do I? If you were to walk out into a field, would you typically be carrying a blind or no? So I will not condemn any method. I do not care for ground blinds. I don't like them. Now, will I say that I'll never hunt one? No. Um, in fact, my when you take a five-year-old, you yeah, better be in a ground blind. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a time of, I do... I will not, I'm not to the point to where I say I will never hate, I'll never hunt one no matter what, because they're not my preference. I don't care for them. I don't like decoys. Um, mm-hmm. My ideal turkey hunt is in the woods with no decoy, just calling that bird to you. Um, that is, if I could do that every time, I would. I'm not going to not kill a bird when it gets later in the season and it's just, getting my butt kicked and it's going to rain for five days straight. And if I'm hunting with my wife or my kid and I know that let's just go out there and enjoy ourselves, I might sit in a blind, but I am not a fan of them. I'm in the exact same boat. Um, but I get out, but and I'm also the type that I'm never going to say never. You know, there's people that say, well, I will never do this. I'll never do that. Well, watch what you say. Because when you say yeah. that, you better not ever there's do it. There's a time it, and a place know? for everything. Right. Like There's a time and a place for like everything. I, I, I don't enjoy hunting out of them near as much. And, and I, I broke my own rule. I hunted out of them one day this year with my bow. I was going to I was gonna get one without a bow or with a bow without a blind. And I got busted a few days in a row. I had turkeys at five yards and just couldn't shoot them. Like, I'm bringing the blind. So I did use one, yeah. but with my gun, that, that's where I can come close to saying never just simply because when you have it, it feels like a different experience. Like I almost feel like you're watching them on TV 
rather yes. than mm-hmm. being like where your every move, like where your eyes, you're worried about blinking when they're at 20 yep. yards mm-hmm. and they're in the woods when you're in there with them. But when you're back in that blind, it just kind of feels like you're tucked away and you can be playing around you, and you can get away with stuff. And it doesn't, you can get you know, away with anything. My, really. I don't get as I mean, excited. Close. Like, I've shot, I haven't, I've lost track. I have to be somewhere close to a hundred turkeys that I've shot. And I still get like, I'm, my heart is pounding and I'm beaten and it's, it's, I'm going crazy when a turkey comes in and the times I've done it in a blind, like every time I've done it, I just don't feel like I ever had that. Like I was never nervous. I'm like, that just doesn't, it's not the right. same experience for me. I know some people absolutely love it. And, and there's times yep. where maybe you need it depending on the scenario. And I know I, I'll guarantee I would have shot more turkeys if I was more inclined to use a blind. Right. But I just feel like I would rather take than shooting less turkeys, but doing it the way I like to do it. For sure. And that's, it's up to the individual on what they enjoy, where they get their excitement. Um, is it more effective? If you were just wanting to kill birds, I believe that a blind with a decoy in the right spot, and if you have the patience to sit there for four hours, it's more effective. It I mean, it's I've seen it time and time again. I don't have the patience, and I enjoy turkey season to get away from the months of what I just went through waterfowl hunting. <laughs> like, I was talking to my wife. And again, we were sitting in a blind. It was like the second to the last day of the season. It was raining. And I find myself in a blind sometimes when I want to have a social event with somebody while I'm turkey hunting. Like, for example, there's a landowner that I turkey hunt with. Um, He's a farmer. He's busy. I try to get him on a bird. The only way I'm going to be able to get him on a bird consistently is put him in a blind. And while I'm in that blind, we're talking about he was my woodshop teacher in school. We're talking, we're cutting up, or it's we're enjoying the experience. Yeah. You know, um, he really doesn't even care about shooting a bird. He just loves being out there for a few hours before he goes to work. So that's where a blind, I think, is very important. Um, but I was sitting in the blind with my wife, and I'm just like, "What are we? What am I doing? Why am I not enjoying this? Why am I sitting here not enjoying this?" I'm yeah. like, because it feels like. It feels like what I've been doing during duck season. I'm sitting in a blind, drinking coffee. I've got my decoys out. I'm just doing random calling, hoping a bird decoys into yep. my decoys. This is duck hunting turkeys. In or I'm deer hunting. Yeah, deer hunting is what it yeah. feels more like to me. Yes. I'm just waiting for so them I'm to like, walk by. <clears throat> yeah. So my style of hunting is I'm walking. If I'm sitting down, it's because there's a gobbler and he's answering. And then that's, or I'm mushroom hunting, or I just, it's, for me, it's an active. It's, it's, I want to be walking. It's just, but, but I'm not going to bash ground. No, I won't either. They're 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 super effective. There's no doubt. I just, my, the thing I've hated about them is I I love to walk. Like we're moving when we're hunting and I mean, we'll put on, cause we, we hunt like a big country. There's days we'll put on eight to 10 miles Roman. And the thing that I love, the thing I don't like about having a ground line is it feels like you're anchored to a spot. Because it's it's right. kind of a thing that you're like, oh man, we gotta take this blind down, then we gotta put it back up, and then you get more chance to be seen as you're messing around with the blind. So, yeah, I, I'm not a real, I'm not keen on them. They're they're effective and they work. And people kill a ton of turkeys out of them, but they're not for me. Which actually, you know, speaking so, of methods, when and this may or may not be the case, but looking through your photos, I don't see a lot of spinning wing decoys. We've. We don't use them nearly as much as we used to. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, there was a time when we used them, but here in the last three or four years, they just, they don't work for us. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we're, the spinning, the spinning wing, in my opinion, is, is an attractor. It's great for getting their attention. It's not great at finishing birds. Uh, so the attractor that we use is actually Canada Goose floaters. Um, they're big. They have high contrast. Ducks love being they're with dark. them anyway. So yep. dark. That is our attractor, and it's great at finishing birds. Yep. And plus, I'm tired of running out there and trying to shut a daggone spinner off when the geese start flying because they do not like. Man, the you are just like repeating everything that I <laughs> that I would say about them. <laughs> like my, I quit using them. Uh, I think three years ago now, and yeah. more out of choice. I mean, they they like. Well, I was actually on. Um, I recorded the podcast with the guys from Banded, and I was on theirs just a few days ago, and, and that we got into the uh -huh. the spinner question a little bit, and that's exactly. One of the things I said is they're an attractant from a long ways away. I mean, you see them from miles, but that finishing, yeah. the way a duck finishes nowadays without a spinner is so much prettier than how they semi-finish with a finish. Like right. They come in, it's almost like one of my buddies always describes it as they come in softer. Like they come and they hover and they're not so edgy and worried, like they'll actually come and sit down. And so just for me, yeah. that extra like few seconds of interaction with each flock when they're that close is super worth, I mean, I shouldn't say having to blow my duck call, but getting to blow my duck call louder and more aggressive to, to hit that attention grabbing thing rather than have that spinner. So I just, I right. noticed that we were looking through some of your Instagram pictures last night and I'm like, I don't see a spinner. Maybe he's, maybe he's yeah. one of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I personally, I don't own a spinner. Um, I think my brother might have one. Um, but here in the last few years, we just, they never make it to the boat. Yeah. Um, they might make it out there once or twice a season, but we're always on the same deal. It's like, yank it. It's not helping. Yep. You know, and the worst case is once you get past the early morning and you start getting the midday when the geese are going to start flying, yep. we don't want it out there. Just, it's just, it, my life has become so much easier. It seems like I don't have to come home and charge batteries. <laughs> I don't have to worry about getting the, like the mojo poles out in the right spot. You're not, uh. You're not dealing with that clunk, 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 clunk. There's no arguments about maybe we should put out more mojos or maybe we need to move them or, you know, we need to change yeah. the direction or kill them. The geese, like you said, the geese are coming. And just all these little things that just, I think it improves the quality of your hunt for one. And it makes you a better <laughs> yeah. hunter too, because you're not relying on that, on that thing, that right. thing to do it for you. You have to use like your skills, whether it's putting decoys out or being in the right spot or blowing a duck call. So learning how to hide, put exactly. in the extra hour in the morning to camouflage the blind or whatever you're hunting out of. Yeah, exactly. All the right. extra little things that makes a guy a duck hunter or a waterfowler and not just a duck killer. So that's right. kind of my, right. exactly. one of my takes on it. So yeah, I'm uh yeah, but at same time, I'm not condemning them. No. You know, I'm not, or I'm not condemning guys no. that use them. No, nope, uh, I would agree. I have no problem with people using them. I mean, and I'll still yeah. say that I think they are effective and a lot of ducks get killed over them. And, and if a guy is going to dry field hunt, I mean, that's especially you know, in the field, they work. There's no question. Yeah. That's almost, that's almost why I don't like them is because that they do work so well for that. They're so that effective. It has, yeah. It's changed the way that people hunt. I mean, there's a lot less reliance on, on scouting, especially in, in a field, you still have to scout, but I know the guys will just set up in a field with, put six spinners out around here and hope to traffic ducks going overhead. And, you know, we've got enough flash going that they do it. And so it's, it's given a lot more people opportunities and a lot more success. There's no, there's no doubt there. 
So I just thought it, when right. we started talking about the, I don't remember what it was that exactly got us onto it about tricky, oh, tricky hunting in the woods, tricky blinds, in the woods, to oh, blinds, yeah. to that. Like I just kind of had a feeling you were like the guy that made a, made a point to do things a certain way. And, and there's a lot of people, you know, right. it doesn't matter how you get the deer or how you get the greenheads or whatever. It's just the, the picture at the end and the result is what important is what important is what's important. And to me, it's almost the process that's more important, I think, than, than uh, that end. I mean, I'd rather shoot. I always tell people I'd rather shoot like five greenheads for me over the water in a cool spot out of my boat blind, hidden well and haven't finished great than 25 greenheads out of a cornfield with 10 robo spinning and yep. not have them. I mean, maybe they, they do finish well typically, but I just, I'd rather do it the other way. And to me, I'd take more enjoyment yep. out of that. And there's guys who, who like absolutely. it absolutely opposite because they don't like wearing waders or they don't <laughs> want to be wet or who knows, whatever reason. But you some heck, I know guys who don't like to shoot them in the water because they look bad for pictures. So I'm like, Oh, whatever, man. I like a wet, yeah. I like a wet looking mallard. So yep. I, I love hunting anything you can call. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I love coyote hunting. I love turkey hunting. I love, you know, duck and goose hunting. Um, I w- again, like I would love elk hunting yep. if I lived out West. So anytime you add something to the hunt that takes away from the art of calling, like a spinner yep. or a strutter decoy, yep. or I'm not even a fan. I don't really enjoy coyote hunting over electronic calls. Mm-hmm. I love an open read yep. call. Yeah, I love cool doing the calling. Um, so anytime you keep adding new gimmicks or tricks, I'm not saying they don't work. Yeah. They do work. Yeah, no doubt. But it's just one yeah. less reason why it takes away from the call itself. So I would just, maybe it's my age. I'm at the point now where I'm willing to kill less, but it'd be more rewarding. You know, I could yeah. go jump shoot mallards too <laughs> if I wanted to. Yeah. I don't have an interest yep. in it. You know, I want to shoot that mallard backpedaling. I can shoot that duck at, 45 yards passing over the blind over the trees going the other way, but I really want to get him right there backpedaling over the decoys. Yep. You know? It just takes on, everything um, takes on a whole new meaning once, once you, I think once you like a, prescribe like that little bit of, um, I don't even know what you call it exactly, but once you put your own values on that part of it, like on the method, like your hunt takes on a whole different aspect, I think. And when like right. there's days that I'm sure that I know we could have gone out and we could have days that we didn't kill a limit that we could have, if we would have shot those birds overhead or shot those ones that swung a little bit, maybe didn't come in how we wanted, but like I'm, none of us are ever going to complain at the end of the day. Cause my whole hunting group, we all pretty much feel the same that, you know what, who cares? I mean, we're not dying. We're not hunting cause we're starving to death. I mean, right. There's always another right. option for food. Granted, I love, I actually love to eat them. But it's not yeah. like we're dying out here. And so it's you kind of put what you want on it. And it's one of the things I've been paying more attention to is that those the steps of a, what a hunter takes, you know, the process, like the five steps. And, and I feel like I would be I've got like three things going. I like the kill. I mean, there's, there's, I still like to shoot. I mean, you won't find Absolutely. many guys who are good at, a, at hunting that don't still like to shoot. But then the, that method yeah. and then the method is probably the biggest part of for me right now, I think is, is where I would, I'd say I'm at. So it's kind of cool to see other people that do it. And it's funny that you mentioned the strutter. Cause I feel the same about that. They're just, it's like, a, it's like a mojo sitting out there. The things can't, yeah, can't, they just come barreling in just stupid to it. So that's why you got kind of quiet with me when I was telling you, I wanted to buy a strutter decoy. Huh? <laughs> yeah, that would be it. <laughs> What'd he say? Oh, 
Bill just mentioned, he goes, that's why you got quiet with me when I was talking about buying a strutter decoy. So yeah, I just yeah. don't approve of them. They work, but I don't, I don't like to carry one around. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't really enjoy carrying them. I've, I own one. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I might use it, but I can remember like it was yesterday, the first time I ever had a decoy ruin a turkey hunt. Oh yeah. This gobbler was on a line and I mean, he was answering the call, coming to the call. Now this was early, I was in college and I had a Delta, a hen decoy made by Delta, I think was the decoy brand. This gobbler was on a line. I could see him. I had a straight line of view, but he could not see my decoy yet. He's marching. And as soon as he sees, as soon as he saw that decoy, that head went up, he folded them wings back, and he did the nervous walk run right into oh, man, the I've seen that. And at that so moment, I was like, forget that, you know. I just I love being in the woods where that bird is hunting you. And just the fact that you can yep. hear him, you you can't see him. He's within kill range. You still can't yep. see him. And he's just that gobble is getting louder and getting and, louder. And better yet. That just, it gives me goosebumps boom. thinking about it. Oh, gosh. Oh, I love it. I've said before, I will probably, someone's going to find me dead in the woods with a heart attack. <laughs> From because, that. Because, <laughs> like, yeah, like one of the early zinc videos, when we first started videoing turkey hunts, it was his, it was our first turkey time video. There was a hunt I did up in Ohio. Jimmy Wren was videoing. I had this gobbler come in, and you can hear my heart pumping through the wireless mic. Oh. Like, all you hear is, you just hear that. I know exactly thump. that. You think and the I turkey's going to hear I don't, it? I, oh, my <laughs> gosh. Like, I haven't lost it. I'm like, and then even through, like, college and even in high school, people are like, you know, there's like, oh, well, don't do drugs. Don't get hooked on all this stuff. And I've always said if there was a drug that gives me more of an adrenaline rush than hunting, I don't want no oh, part of it. Be because I can't yeah. handle it. <laughs> I can't handle a gobbler coming in without halfway freaking oh, out. I you love know? it. I can't. I, that's one. Of the, that's. I'm so glad that I started turkey hunting. An old boss of mine got me going on it. And like before that, the spring meant not nothing to me, but it was not. It wasn't a big deal. But now, yeah. I I don't know if you followed any of my. I don't know how long you've been following me on Instagram. I guess, but I was lucky to have. I think I was gone for over 20 straight days turkey hunting. <laughs> in on nice. like three separate trips all just continuous and it was like some of the best three weeks of my life like with hunting with different buddies in different places yeah. and we shot i probably saw 10 turkeys die in that time period or more and it was it was so awesome like the spring is just like this whole new thing for me since i started turkey hunting and it's not it's been since yeah. i was 25 years old so it's been a while now <laughs> but man like it just like i couldn't imagine if i had to quit turkey hunting what i would do i'd be every i'd have to go out in the i'd still have to chase them just to hear that yeah. Just to hear that boom. Oh, gosh. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, so, you know, you were just talking about when you guys, when you were working with, with Zinc and that. And uh -huh. it kind of leads in perfect to um, one of the things that I think um, a lot of people could, could get some good information from you on this and just advice is um, it was probably, I think most people who probably are listening probably won't be super young, but. Um, so when I talked about how I knew you as a goose caller, I think, I think, did you ever come to any goose calling contests in Minnesota back in like the early two thousands? I don't remember if I ever saw you any, I don't think, I don't so. think so. It, it doesn't ring a bell. Cause we weren't, you would have been at the Avery though, in probably like 2002 or three, huh? I started working for zinc in two, in August of 2002. Okay. 
Um, I'd been contest calling for four years up till that point, four or five years. Yeah, so you would have been, did you, go, uh, did you ever go to the Avery in Illinois? The Avery International? The International? Yeah. 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 I think, I, yeah, lost, I, think I, got, I remember seeing you there I, is where it was. I went there with an, another uh, guy that was a contender to win back in the day. And um, yeah. And, and so I saw you there and then I started, then all of a sudden, like you start winning stuff and you were like the guy for quite a few years there. And, and I, what I, one thing I remember about the calling scene and I was always around it is you run into a lot of guys, kids, typically younger guys that are 16 to 25 years old that are very good goose callers or duck callers. And they're looking desperately for kind of to make a name for themselves, which I mean, I think everybody wants to do at some point. But they're looking to get teamed up with a manufacturer or a sponsor or whatever it was. And I feel like I kind of like watched you progress through that scene and you did it in a way that I super respect because um, it it didn't seem like you were the guy out there chasing that. And I think you just I think you would have some good advice for how I remember like I, I have this feeling like that Fred probably like found you based on your calling ability and then, but I remember you were simple things like you were clean cut and you were always professional. You were never on the internet raising a ruckus over things. <clears throat> and maybe that's just, that's just part of it. But maybe for those guys that mm-hmm. maybe just talk about how you kind of like use goose calling and, and you, and what you did to like separate yourselves from other people to, to start off with the guy who was the biggest guy in, in waterfall at that time. And then to become another one of those guys yourself. Right, right. Um, so basically, if I was to sum up the question is, so if you've, and I'm, I'm basically just kind of rewording it on, based on how I'm going to answer it is, so you get these young guys, or even older guys, doesn't matter, if they're seeking, if they're going, wanting to talk to manufacturers about teaming up, call it sponsorships, call it cross-promotion, call it whatever, then you can lump them into they're wanting to get into the hunting industry. So therefore I think it's safe to say they're wanting to make a living or they're wanting to, uh, you know, yeah, make a living out of it, some shape or form. Now, I always have the question for people is what do you want to do? Like nobody hunts for a living. Mm -hmm. Unless you're guiding an Africa hunt or something, nobody makes a living just pulling the trigger. Either A, you can be a guide, mm-hmm. and you're taking someone. It's not the same. You're providing a service. Definitely not the same. It's not the same. Definitely. I've, I've been there and done yeah. that, and I knew really quick that was not my cup of tea at all. Um, so everybody in the hunting industry provides some sort of a service, whether you're a photographer like yourself, yeah. whether you work in sales, whether you work in promotion, marketing, engineering. Everybody does something. Um and hunting is just the industry itself. So uh, I think what my advice for somebody wanting to get into the hunting industry is, one, you need to pick, look at it as any other type of business. What do you enjoy doing? Do you enjoy talking to people? Because I know a lot of really good callers who do not enjoy talking to people. Mm-hmm. They, they don't need to be in customer service, I can promise <laughs> you that. Are they good at designing products? Are they good, you know, what is... What skill set do you want to develop? And don't say you want to get better at calling ducks and geese and shooting them mm-hmm. because 
you still have to have something else to offer. That's not a skill to bring to um, someone. You have correct. So these companies, let's say, I don't, I don't want to call out any specific brands or companies, but let's say there's a decoy company. You need to look at them as no different than a car manufacturer, or a camera manufacturer, or somebody who manufactures lawnmowers or whatever. They are a manufacturing company. They just happen to make a product that you use as your pastime and free time that you truly love and have a passion for. But there's still a company that is in the business of making money. So, you, you know, if you're going to be a part of their marketing program or whatever, you have to have something to bring to the table, something to offer them. And my advice is, is discover what your skill set is going to be, whether you're going to be a writer, a photographer, a videographer, work in customer service, public relations, marketing, graphic design, engineering, and focus on being the best you can be. And the rest will take care of itself. The companies will find you. Um, that's just, you know, it's, and again, I'm not the best at answering that question because the situations I've always ended up in, I just feel very blessed to be at the right time at the right place and being very lucky. Because um, I remember I kind of injected myself. I wanted to be, there's two things I ever wanted to do in my life that I realized in high school was work in the hunting industry or join the military. I have a, all my family members. They're all longtime military. My dad's a Vietnam veteran. My grandfather's a Marine veteran, World War II veterans. And I wanted to work in the hunting industry or join the military. And I was sitting in college lost. Like I was going to class. I was doing okay. But I was like, this is not what I want to do. And I also reached a point in my contest calling career. So this is before social media. This is before YouTube. I'm this kid in Kentucky, in central Kentucky, not even known for waterfowl hunting. And I was going to calling contests in southern Illinois, eastern shore of Maryland, and I was beat before I even stepped up on stage because I went into it with no confidence, thinking, looking at all these guys from southern Illinois and thinking they deserve it more than I do because they live in the waterfowl meccas. They... You know, they're call makers. They, I don't deserve, I can't beat these guys. And I finally got fed up with feeling like that. And I made the decision that I was going to, I wanted to go work somewhere in the country as ground level grunt guide. I didn't care even if I got paid. I just wanted to insert myself into really good waterfowl hunting to kind of work my way up to, uh, to learn the ropes really. So then that way, I could go to these calling contests and say, you know what? I worked for a month and a half for an outfitter. We, I set decoys. I worked my butt off. Nobody's working harder than I am. I deserve to be here just as much as you guys do. And that was kind of my way with mentally wrapping my head around, all right, well, I'm from Kentucky. Hunter Grounds is from Southern Illinois. How am I supposed to beat him, and why do I deserve to beat him? You know, um, so just – and where the story's going, so then that's how I met Fred, um, was because I was going to shows working for a call maker. Um, I originally, before I started working for Zinc Calls, there was a call maker out of Louisville, a guy named Carl Lossman. Um, he hmm. made custom duck and goose yep. calls, and I traveled around with his family, not making a penny, just traveled around with them, and I would help them sell calls at shows and in trade. 
And that's all she wrote. So you can hear some of the uh, spots where things were fading out rapidly and it just ended in a dead silence, although we didn't know it at the time. So uh, thanks for hanging in there, guys, as we learn what's going on and how to run this thing. And hopefully that's something that's the first and last time we'll ever have anything like that happen because it was a big bummer as the last 30 minutes were also some really cool stuff. But as it is, that's all she wrote. So thanks for listening, and we will catch up with you next week.